0: Amen, it's good to be here on the Lord's Day with you all, Um, those who are visiting, I am not Pastor Rusty, um, but it is always a privilege to be able to support our pastor and the elders here at Cornerstone and with them coming back from the G3 conference, which I'm sure was an absolute blessing, and I can't wait to see that live on YouTube, which is not live anymore, but it will be to me, Um, so it will be a blessing for sure. But it is always a privilege and one not to be taken so lightly to be able to stand here before you all to bring the word of God. Amen. And one that we should not take lightly. But we're going to be in Romans, still chapter one. Those who were here a couple months ago, the couple times I told you when I fill in, we're going to do an exposition of the book of Romans here and we're going to continue into that. And we're going to be in Romans chapter one in verses eight through 17 This morning. In the past couple times where we started, we started at verse 1 1, and we broke down that one verse and what it lays out for us. The second time we went through verses 2 through 7, and Paul's magnifying the one whose gospel he preaches from the outright first verse of this book. He's lifting the curtain to show the playwright, one whom is never seen, but the author of it all. From the very first verse, Paul is pointing to the possessor of this gospel, who has bought, called, and set him apart to proclaim God's gospel. Then we saw where Paul expounds on God's gospel and summarizes the entire work of Jesus. His gospel that was promised, it was given and declared, In this gospel, a testimony of God that Jesus is the son of God. So within the first seven verses, the gospel, I believe, is laid out. It's laid out. So this gives us just an insight into the picture, into the burning desire of the commission of Paul. The first seven verses. Now I ask that you would stand for me for the, with me for the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse eight, it says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world for God, whom I serve in my spirit in the gospel of his son is my witness as to how without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers, earnestly asking if perhaps now at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be strengthened that is, to be mutually encouraged while among you by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may have some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. In this way, for my part, I am eager to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, God, this morning as we gather here on this Lord's Day to open up your word acknowledging that the Holy Spirit is the primary teacher, and we ask that you would illumine our minds to this text, that it is rightly divided, and we apply it to our lives. May you be glorified. May your church be edified. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So we're going to now direct our attention to the last half of Paul's introduction to the Roman church, where he begins to share his desire now. There are three traits we see in this passage of Paul that we will expound on. One is Paul's gratitude of God's work of grace in others. The second is Paul's divine obligation. And the third is going to be Paul's stance in the gospel. The first one we see here in verses 8 through 13. We begin to see Paul's gratitude of God's work of grace in others. Specifically here in the Roman church. We see first Paul's thanking God through Jesus Christ for all of the church in Rome. And this word thank in the Greek is eucharisto. It's the prefix you. It means good and is where our English word for eulogy derives from, which is a good word spoken at a funeral for someone. Paul often begins his letters with thanks to God. But more specifically, Paul is acknowledging that God's grace works well. our eternal gain, and his glory. Paul's thinking thanking God through Jesus Christ for God's grace, working well within the church in Rome. The question is why? It begs this. And the next phrase gives us the answer, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, to understand this, we must ask this question. How was their faith known in all the world? This word world in the Greek is cosmos, which means the world or universe. And so with that knowledge, we know that the audience of this letter and Paul himself historically only were aware of their known world. More specifically for them was the Mediterranean world. They were not aware of any other parts of the world. So context tells us that their faith was known in all the Mediterranean world. It was the known world to them at this time. And this, and I say I can speak on behalf of the elders of this church as well, is our prayer for Cornerstone, that your faith will be known throughout our city, throughout our nation, throughout our world, as it's known. He goes on to say, for God is my witness Notice here that Paul calls on God as his witness. Not anyone else, but God. Now many will say that Paul is going against the Scriptures because he is making an oath. Which according to Matthew 5, do not make oaths, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Right? We know this. Paul is not sinning here. There are lawful oaths or vows that please God. In fact, there's a whole section in the Westminster Confession of Faith called Lawful Oaths. So again, we see Paul making it clear that what he is saying and doing is from God and calls him as a witness. Whom whom else is he going to call? He goes on to say, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. So we have God as his witness whom he serves with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Notice the change in language from verse 1. Remember last time when we, we covered that, this was probably over a month ago now, Paul said he was set apart for God's gospel and now the gospel of his son. What is Paul communicating here? God is the possessor of the gospel and his son Jesus Christ is the heart of the content of the gospel. I've heard so many pastors say, they preach the gospel every time they stand behind the pulpit. The church, sadly, there is very little or no mention of Jesus Christ in their sermon. And church, if Christ is not at the center, then it is not God's gospel. Many, when they evangelize, will begin to tell their testimony. Oh, I, I've been born again. I, I did this, A, B, and C, and God delivered me. I gave my heart to Jesus They begin to tell this, but understand we are bearing witness about Jesus, but we are not telling them the gospel. Why do I say this? Because the gospel is not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ. Your testimony is important, but you are bearing witness for him. You are not proclaiming the gospel. But this is what Christianity and Western civilization has become. Just share your testimony. And there is no gospel. The gospel is about Jesus. It's what he did. His life of sinless obedience, his atoning death on a cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, and his outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church. The gospel is under attack in the church today. I think we can all agree on this, and it's been this way. Even historically, it's been under attack. And I can't say it enough of how important it is to get the gospel right. Paul is leaning into this. He started off in the first seven verses laying out the gospel. He began with it. He didn't begin with what happened to him on the road to Damascus. He began with God's gospel. There's something to take away here. He begins to say that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now, Paul's longing to see the Roman Christians face-to-face was that he could impart some spiritual gift. This was a longing he had in him. Now, he is not speaking of the gifts in 1 Corinthians. Let's make that clear. Instead, what is in view here is becoming confirmed, built up, and edified in their faith. Nor is he writing about the charismatic gifts here, but about establishing believers in confidence and maturity in their faith. This is what Paul is speaking of here. Why? That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. This is why Paul wrote the letter to the Romans and is why in the providence of God, his letter is given to us so that faith is taken root, it may be established, so it may grow to maturity and full conformity to the image of Christ. He goes on to say, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of Gentiles. This is where we know that the church is predominantly Gentile here. We also know that according to Acts 18, Emperor Claudius ran out all the Jews. But this does not mean there were not some converted Jews among the church. So just in these first few verses, we see Paul wearing his heart on his sleeve, essentially. His gratitude for God's work of grace in the Roman church, where he himself pray "If God's will that he may see them, is such a deep longing for God's people. This is a longing that personally, I pray that God will continue to cultivate in me for his church. Do not forsake the gathering of believers when so many of us don't even take that serious. I pray that this will be cultivated not only with me, but also for his church and for you towards one another. Verse 14 Let's continue. It says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, this begins here, Paul's divine obligation. We get to see this in verses 14 through 15 here. And notice that Paul did not say he was a debtor to the Jew and the Greek, but to the Greek and the barbarian. The Greeks in view here were the highly cultured, civilized, intellectual elite of the ancient culture. Distinguished from the rest of the Gentiles who were pagan barbarians. Paul is not speaking of owing them money. No, Paul is speaking about a moral debt. He is burdened here by a divine obligation that was commissioned to him as an apostle. That is his burden. It is a moral debt. Remember, he was set apart as an apostle to the Gentiles, and he is spending his life engaging that divine obligation. Paul's way of thinking is as long as he is alive, he cannot pay that debt because he owes his life to every person he meets. Think about that. So he goes on to say, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Because this burning desire, this obligation, that while he is alive, it's a debt because he owes his life to every person he meets. Paul is saying, I like what Dr. Sproul says here, he says, every fiber of my being is ready to preach the gospel to you, and I cannot wait to get there. That is essentially what Paul is saying. Every part of me, Church, do we see our obligation to the mission that God has commissioned us the same way as Paul? No, we are not apostles. There are no more apostles today. But if you are born from above, if you are born again, if you are in Christ, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you have been set apart. You have been commissioned. Go therefore. Claim the gospel to all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all things that I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you to the end of the age. You have been commissioned. We can't sit here and differentiate and say, this is Paul. He wrote of a third of the New Testament. It doesn't apply to us. There may be truth there in the sense of his obligation, But he has commissioned us in the same way as Paul. And does every fiber in us burn in readiness to proclaim the gospel in your sphere of influence, in the people that you meet, in your workplace, in your home? Men as spiritual leaders in the home. Does every fiber in you burn with readiness to proclaim the gospel? We see here the third thing, this trait that we see in verses 16 and 17, Paul's stance in the gospel. We know these verses well. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, Paul has been talking about this gospel a lot and to whose and to whom it is about. He's made that very clear. Now Paul changes gear here and he gives us his stance on it. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. If we think our post-Christian culture is bad, then the first century culture Paul lived in was much worse. The hostility towards the gospel and its messengers brought death. It brought imprisonment, beatings. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. How many have been ashamed to be a Christian? Fearful of what might be said if people knew that we are a disciple of Jesus. Reputations get ruined. Jobs get lost. Friends desert you. You fill in the blank. This is the real crutch for many Christians today. They want to be secret service Christians, as one author puts it. But not Paul. He could not wait to get to Rome because he was not ashamed of the gospel. Paul was not ignorant. He knew what it meant to go to Rome. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Go back to his burning desire and his obligation that was divine. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. This word power here in the Greek is dunamis, from which we get the word Dynamite. Dynamite. The power of the gospel is literally, if we're going to take it in the original language, dynamite. We all know what dynamite means. And if you're from my neck of the woods, we use dynamite for fishing. Or to shoot from long distances and see what happens. He says it's for the power of of God for salvation. In today's culture, we have taken for granted the freedom and privilege of God's word, amen? We have the capability of hearing it at home, in our cars, on our phones, in our churches, our small groups, teachings, whatever, to the point where we have become weary of it. We ought to lift up our hands and rejoice that we have been given the honor of hearing God speak to us through his word. Those who teach us how to grow churches tell us we have to be sensitive to what people want. I planted a church. I came from this side of it. Literally had people telling me this very thing. We need to be sensitive to what people want. We have to tickle the ears. We are told to cast our sermon not on the basis of what the word of God declares, but on the felt needs of the people. You want to talk about it in justice. That is not what the people need. God's priority is that people understand his holiness. Who he is, his attributes. People may not feel their need of that, but there is nothing they need more than to have their minds exploded in their understanding of who God is. I was talking to Nick yesterday with the coastal uh, ministry that he has here where he's teaching students and stuff. That's what he does, the attributes of God. So many times I grew up in the church where they say, don't do drugs, don't do this, don't have sex outside of marriage, don't do that, don't do this. If someone would have just taught me who God was, a lot of these things probably would have fell in place. Instead, I was the curious cat, and you tell me I can't do something, I'm going to go do it. (laughs) This is why Paul's not ashamed. God does not need anything. He does not even need the gospel, yet it pleases him to invest his power there. Do we see that, church? There is no plan B with God. (laughs) From the beginning, it was only A. That's it. It pleases him to invest his power here. God's power is invested in the gospel, and he has promised that his word will not return void. We see this in Isaiah 55, 11. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is why Paul is not ashamed. He wanted to preach the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation. He got this. He understood this. He knows this. And church, what a burden that takes off of us, because guess what? You are commanded to do one thing, proclaim the gospel. You don't have the power to save them we get so discouraged when we have the opportunity by the providence of God to proclaim the gospel we proclaim the gospel and because they don't convert we sink down in pity as if we we done it wrong there's nothing in you that can change the heart of a person just it's not whether you fail it's whether are you faithful be faithful in proclaiming the gospel give it let god do what god only can do Don't beat yourself up. Just be faithful in doing it. And this goes for all areas of life, the family, the home, your workplace, the guy behind you at food line, whatever. He goes on to say, here: for in the righteousness as we end out here, if God is revealed from faith to faith, that is written, the righteousness shall live by faith. That one phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. Understanding this righteousness is key to understanding the gospel. Augustine said that the righteousness here is not God's righteousness, but that which he provides for people who do not have any righteousness. It is the righteousness he makes available by free grace to all who believe. Martin Luther calls it an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that is not our own because it is of Christ it's what we call double imputation our sins were imputed to Christ on the cross and his righteousness was imputed to us and there was nothing in you that moved his hand nothing when pastor said very well the only thing you brought to the table was your sin It's not our own. If you know anything about Martin Luther, and if you've studied his life in the monastery, and he was the expert of the law of God, he judged himself against the standard of God's perfection. It was this very book, the book of Romans, that the Holy Spirit used to illumine his mind unto salvation. Because he realized he can't keep it. The righteous shall live by faith. This phrase comes from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. It is quoted three times in the New Testament. In its original context, Habakkuk was dip- deeply distressed. The people of God were being invaded by pagans, and the pagans were winning. And Habakkuk was confused, so he asked this. He says, "Who You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So Habakkuk stood and waited to see what God would say to him. And the Lord answered him and said this. And the Lord answered me, write this vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. We would all be lying if we didn't understand that in the Christian life, We feel distressed because the promises of God do not show up when we want them to. We've been there, right? Amen? We cry out and we say, God, where are you in this? Why is this not happening? This was the complaint of Habakkuk. And yet the God we worship is a promise-keeping God. He tells Habakkuk to be patient. He said, for the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It seems slow. Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. One who lives by faith is a righteous person in the sight of God. It was counted to Abraham as what? Righteousness. The righteous live by trust. Matthew 4 4. We cannot live off a of bread of lawn, but what? By every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Anybody can believe in God. What it means to be a Christian is to trust Him when He speaks. Which does not require a leap of faith or a crucifixion of the intellect, which is so common in today's time, that we must crucify the intellect, that we're not to be smart, we're to be this emotional, you know, creature of any time that God comes into the picture and it's not smart. It's not a crucifixion of the intellect, it requires a crucifixion of your pride. Because no one is more trustworthy than God. When we do not trust God, church, listen, when we do not trust God, it is because we are putting our own corrupt qualities on him. We're putting our own corrupt qualities on him, but God does not have those corrupt qualities. You can trust him with your life, and it is the theme of this epistle. The righteous shall live by faith, and from here, Paul begins to open up the riches of the gospel for the people of God. He gets into the first half. He gets into the theological, the indicative. He gets into all of that. And then he switches to the application on the second half of this book. He teaches us. He opens it up. He removes the veil. Understand something. If there's anything that we can take away from these first 17 verses is one that Paul begins with the gospel. Understanding what the gospel is and getting it right is central and Christ is the center. It has to happen. And as always, little mention of Jesus, understanding that is if you were sitting here today and you were unsure, none of this makes sense. You don't know what the gospel, this is the first time you've heard it in this way. Please understand scripture says today is the day of salvation. All are commanded to repent and turn from their sin, understanding what Christ has done. He did what you could not. He did what I could not. And your sin was imputed to him upon the cross. And freely he imputed his righteousness to you. That is the crux right there of the gospel. And when God raised him from the dead, it was God's proclamation. It was a billboard, in a sense, of God saying, this is my son. He is the son of God. Believe. Repent. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. If the Holy Spirit is drawing you to Himself, you can't fight it anyways. But for those of us who are born again and born from above, my prayer is that this burning desire that Paul had will be cultivated in us all by the Holy Spirit. That when we leave this place, you're never dismissed from the church, but you're only sent. And that will be, you take your last breath. You are a sent people. We gather here. We worship together. We encourage one another. We rebuke often sometimes. But we are sent. So my question is, when we are leaving this place and we are sent, are we going with the burning desire to proclaim the the gospel? Are we laying it out? Do you have the gospel right? Maybe you're in the camp where you use your testimony and you call it the gospel church. That's not the gospel. That's what God has done in you. But we have to tell them. We have to tell them as we switch and come to the Lord's table and begin to celebrate both what Christ has done and yet the bitterness of it. And as Pastor Rusty comes and he explains this and we take part and take the elements, I pray that you would ponder and I pray that the Holy Spirit will convict and do in us what needs to be done. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy. God, we thank you that we can be here and we can gather freely at this time. To open your word up, to divide it rightly, to apply it. But God, but God not in and of ourselves, but Lord through the power of your Holy Spirit, who illumines our minds, who is the primary teacher of it. God, I pray. That we will ponder these things, that our minds will be set forth on Christ. And Lord, before we come to this table, God, that we would examine ourselves according to what your word teaches. And ultimately, all for your glory and for our good. May you be glorified. May your church be edified. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ.